Good day, everyone. Welcome to the Memorial Heights Baptist Church podcast. Thank you so much for joining us as we open up and listen to God's Word together. Today's message is part 11 in Pastor DJ Ritchie's Sunday morning series on Elijah. This message was given on March 28, 2021. If you have not yet subscribed, please do. When you do, you will receive a notification each time we post a new message and will always be up to date. We hope this encourages you in your relationship with Christ, and if it does, we would love to connect with you in person sometime. But for now, grab your Bible, open your ears, and let's get into it. Turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 46. We're going to finish our study on the God of Elijah today, knowing the God of Elijah. You may wonder, what does Elijah have to do with Palm Sunday? Well, you'll see in a moment how Elijah ties in what he had to say about what Jesus came to do in Jerusalem. But it is Passover, it's the beginning of the Jewish Passover, and when the Jewish people celebrate Passover to this day, they have a meal called the Seder. How many of you have participated, that's a hard word, how many of you have participated in a Seder meal? Okay, Uh, some of you have, I'd I'd like in the future uh, for us to do that as a church sometime, I think there's a lot that we can learn from the symbolism that's in the Passover meal. We as New Testament believers, we're not uh, obligated to observe Passover, but it's good to know uh, what Passover is all about because Jesus Christ is our Passover lamb. And that's why he came. He came to die. But at the Jewish Seder, uh, at the end or towards the end of the Seder meal, the Jewish people will pour a glass the cup of Elijah. And the cup of Elijah is going to sit here today as a reminder, as it is a reminder to the Jewish people, that God has promised that Elijah is coming back. At the Jewish Seder, they'll pour this cup of Elijah. Some Jewish families will even have a seat for Elijah, empty at the meal, in anticipation that this could be the year that Elijah has returned, and Elijah could possibly join us and I'm, I know that, that many of them just do this as, a, as an act of tradition. They don't really believe. They think it's a legend. But there are Jewish people today, and all Christians should, today should understand that God has promised to send Elijah back. Some Jewish families will even, after they pour the drink, they'll go to the, to the front door. They'll open the door. Some will actually invite Elijah. And, of course, some of those Jewish families have a funny father or a father who thinks he's funny and he might even kind of bump the table to tell the kids oh look Elijah he's taking a sip out of the out of the drink the Jewish people believe that Elijah's coming back because God has promised to send Elijah back we're going to look at that prophecy in just a moment but before we go to that prophecy I want you to see what God says about prophecy in general from Isaiah chapter 46 Verse 5 says, To whom will ye liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be like? They lavish gold out of the bag, and weigh silver in the balance, and hire a goldsmith, and he maketh it a god. They fall down, yea, they 
worship. They bear him upon the shoulder. They carry him and set him in his place, and he standeth. From his place shall he not remove. Yea, one shall cry unto him, yet can he not answer, nor save him out of his trouble. Remember this, and show yourselves men. Bring it again to mind, O ye transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. Calling a ravenous bird from the east, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it, I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it, I will also do it. Hearken unto me, ye stout-hearted, that are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It shall not be far off. And my salvation shall not tarry. And I will place salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. We've been talking about the ministry of Elijah. We've been learning about the God of Elijah, the power of God, the purity of God, the plan of God. Last week, we began to look at the providence of God and how God exercises his providence through partnering with us. We said last week that God, being the all-powerful, all-sovereign God that he is, can do what he wants to do, when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. But what God wants to do, what God chooses to do is to use you. And one of the best examples of the providence of God at work with us using, partnering his people, is when God would choose a prophet and he would call that prophet and he would deliver messages to and through that prophet and he would declare through that prophet what he was going to do. And when we see God's prophecies fulfilled, we see the providence of God at work through the partnership with his prophets. And it's a reminder to us that God knows all things, that God will do what he says he'll do. God, as Titus 1-2 says, cannot lie. And he will keep all of his promises. And he will fulfill all of his prophecies. Prophecy is one of the greatest evidences, one of the greatest proofs that we have that God is sovereign, that God is almighty. Amos chapter 3, verse 7 Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealeth his secret unto his servants, the prophets. Now the context there is specifically the nation of Israel. God is saying, listen, what I do with the nation of Israel, I'm going to tell you about beforehand. And certainly we see that evidenced throughout the Old Testament. We see it evidenced throughout the New Testament. But there are prophecies concerning the nation of Israel that God has not yet fulfilled. Nevertheless, we know based on all of the prophecies that he has fulfilled that those prophecies will come true as well. And Elijah is one of the more significant prophets as it relates to the future. Because as we go to the very end of the Old Testament, and I would invite you now to turn with me from Isaiah to the book of Malachi, the very last book before you hit Matthew, the very last book in the Bible of the Old Covenant, the the, uh, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 4, the very last prophet sent, the very last prophecy given before God went silent 
for roughly 400 years before God sent John the Baptist as the last of the Old Covenant prophets, God said this through the prophet Malachi. Verse 1 says, For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. Now, I wish that day were today. I, I do, but it is coming. There's a day coming when God will incinerate wickedness, and the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. In other words, they're, they're going to be finished and they're, and they're going to be gone forever. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall, and ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet." In the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Now, I think as we look around, we can say that that day has not happened yet. There are some people who erroneously teach that we're living in the day of the Lord today, that, that the day of the Lord, some even teach that the day of the Lord happened back in the first century. Uh, that's absolute, um, well, it's absolute error. Let's just be, let's just be kind and, and put it that way. Uh, this has not happened yet. This, is, this has not been completely fulfilled yet. But verse 4 says, Remember ye, now again, this is written to the nation of Israel, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Literally, lest I completely destroy the earth. We see even in the day of the Lord, even as we look at Zechariah, as we look at the prophecies in Jeremiah and Isaiah, as we look at, of course, the book of Revelation, we see that the earth is going to be almost completely destroyed destroyed in the great tribulation, but there will be even then the mercy of God. And he will not completely in that day destroy the earth. Now there is a day coming in the future where God will establish a new heavens and a new earth. That day is coming as well. But notice that Elijah is going to come, Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And whenever the Jewish people Pour the cup of Elijah. They are living in anticipation of that day. Now the great tragedy is that because there is a partial hardening of the Jewish people by the Lord because of their rejection of their Messiah the first time that He came, that they don't understand that even in this, they are condemning themselves because they are acknowledging that they need to have their hearts changed in anticipation of the prophecy of Elijah to come and change people's hearts, the, Jew, the hearts of the Jewish people, they are admitting that they need to have their hearts changed without realizing it. But nevertheless, we know that God will keep His promise. And so, let's look again. We're going to come back to Malachi chapter 4 in a few moments. But let's look again this morning at 2 Kings chapter 2 Kings chapter 2, and let's pick up where we left off last week as we consider the strangeness 
of how Elijah exited the stage. The strangeness, the peculiarities. We're going to talk this morning about the mystery of the Elijah prophecy. And, and this is a great mystery. A, a, a mystery is something, uh, the Greek word is mysterion. I like to say that word, mysterion. It's kind of fun to say. And uh, Lord willing, in a few weeks on Sunday nights, we're going to start a new series. Uh, I believe, Lord willing, it'll be April 18th. We'll start a new series on prophecy. We're going to spend a couple months just looking at, at what prophecy is and how to interpret prophecy. We're going to look specifically at how the Bible interprets prophecy because the Bible is one book, but it's also 66 books. It has one author, but it also has roughly 40 human authors through whom God spoke, the prophets who, and apostles who wrote down the scriptures. And so we can look at how they interpreted each other's prophecies under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit so that we can understand how to interpret prophecy. So there is a mystery here that we're going to look at. And we have to be honest and say that we don't have all the clues yet. We don't have all the pieces put together for us yet. And so we're not going to be able to answer all of your questions today, but I do want us to ask some questions together. And we are going to be able to answer some of the questions that we have as we look at the Scriptures. And we do look at some of the clues that God has given us. Because a mystery is not something that we don't know anything about. It's something that we've been given clues to, but, but it just hasn't been put together yet. Amen. If you've read a good mystery novel, I've read, uh, now it's been a while, but I, I've read a whole bunch of uh, Agatha Christie novels a uh, uh, number of years ago. I got on an Agatha Christie kick, and I, and I especially the Hercule Poirot books, I, I read the, uh, uh, I don't think I read all of them, but I read a, a lot or most of the Hercule Poirot books that Agatha Christie wrote. And, and one of the great things about Agatha Christie is whenever she would give you the reveal, you would realize oh man, I could have figured that out. I should have been able to figure that out. I mean, it was right there. The, the, the clues were so obvious when, when they come together, when they align, but we just don't have that, that key, that linchpin that pulls everything together until the reveal. And that's how God's mysteries work as well. There are things that the Scriptures tell us. The mystery of the church was hinted at. There were clues given in the Old Testament. Nevertheless, it was a mystery until... God did it. And the Apostle Paul uh, came and said, listen, I'm the one who, who God has chosen to reveal this mystery. But in revealing the mystery, the Apostle Paul would quote from Isaiah. He would quote, quote from the Old Testament. And so the clues were there. So we're going to look at some clues today. And again, we won't be able to answer all of the questions that we bring, but we are going to consider the mystery of the Elijah prophecy. And the peculiarities of Elijah begin even before the prophecy of Malachi 4 is given. They begin, the mysteries begin, the peculiarities begin right at his rapture. So look again with me as we see Elijah becomes the second man ever to escape, at least, at least until now, at least temporarily, to escape death. Enoch being the first. Enoch walked with God, Genesis tells us. Hebrews 11 highlights this as well. And yet, he was not. God took him. We know that Hebrews 9 says it's appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Nevertheless, Enoch and Elijah, at least for the time being, have escaped death. So that in and of itself is peculiar, but notice how God highlights 
this peculiarity again, as we saw last week in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 1. It came to pass when the Lord, Jehovah, would take up Elijah into heaven by a whirlwind that Elijah went with Elisha from Gilgal. And last week we took that journey with them and we talked about what God was teaching Elisha, what God was teaching us in that process. But look on in verse 11. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold... Pay attention to this, God says. There appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven and Elisha saw it and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more and he took hold of his own clothes and rent them into pieces. Now, listen, God is not in the business of theatrics. God doesn't just do things uh, to show uh, to show how powerful he is. He, he always does things with a reason and for a purpose and, and usually for multiple purposes. And so God is doing this, this dramatic removal, this dramatic rapture of Elijah to draw our attention to it, to draw our attention to the fact that Elijah isn't going to die like every other prophet with the one exception of Enoch, that God has got something else in store for Elijah. So we see the peculiarity of the fiery rapture. Then we also see the peculiarity in the futile search that ensues. The futile search for Elijah. Now it's interesting when Hebrews chapter 11, the author of Hebrews, whoever that was, when he talks about Enoch and Enoch being raptured, that he highlights the fact that men could not find Enoch. In other words, also after Enoch's departure, people didn't know where he went. They looked for him, but they couldn't find him. So also we see the exact same thing happen here with Elijah. Look again at 2 Kings, and let's pick it up in verse 15, where we left off last week. And when the sons of the prophets, which were to view at Jericho, saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they said unto him, Behold, now, there be with thy servant fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and seek thy master. Lest peradventure the Spirit of the Lord hath taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, Ye shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent there for fifty men, and they sought three days but found him not. And when they came again to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go not? The men who sent out the search party, the prophets, the sons of the prophets, these were, remember, students. These were uh, guys who were in school, a, a prophetic school, to teach them how to exercise uh, the gift that God had given them of prophecy. And these guys had a sense that Elijah was somewhere. And so they sent out a search. Even though they knew that Elisha had been given the mantle of Elijah, even though they knew that the Spirit of God that had rested on and worked through Elijah now was working through Elisha, even though they knew he was the prophet on the scene now, nevertheless, they still had this sense that there was something more to do. Maybe God put Elijah somewhere else. Maybe, I, we don't know for sure, did they, did they think that, that God had just 
dropped him. That seems like that would be a strange thing to believe for a group of prophets. It seems more likely that they thought maybe God had placed him somewhere else to begin ministry somewhere else. We need to go find him. We need to go. We don't, we don't know exactly. Maybe they were just looking for a body. But it's interesting that they had a sense that there was more to Elijah's story. They had an idea as prophets. They were students. They weren't, they weren't experts by any means. But the, the students had a sense that, listen, this, the story of Elijah, hasn't. there's not a period here. There, there's, there's something more. We need to be very careful that we admit that all of us, our grasp of prophecy is limited. We need to be very careful that we don't try to explain away all the mysteries of the Bible and think that we have everything figured out. In fact, I would caution you against following anybody who thinks that they have everything, prophetically speaking, figured out. Because the Apostle Paul himself said in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, now we see through a glass darkly. Now we see dimly. Then we will see clearly. Then we'll see him face to face and and everything will make sense and everything will come together for us. But there are still mysteries of God. There are still mysteries in the scriptures. God told Daniel through the angel in Daniel chapter 12, he's given these incredible visions of the future and he's written them down. And of course, he wants to know what they mean and he wants to know when all these things happen. And so God gives him the interpretation of many of these visions that he has so he understands what's coming. But he wants to know when. He wants to know when it's going to happen. And so he says to the angel, The angel says to him in Daniel chapter 12, They that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament. They that turn many to righteousness as the stars forever. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words, seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro. Knowledge shall be increased. And then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, one on this side of the bank of the river, the other on that side of the bank of the river. And one said to the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, How long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, which was upon the waters of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, and he swore by him that liveth forever, that it shall be for a time, times and half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. And I heard, but I understood not. Even the great prophet Daniel did not understand everything. And he said, O my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he, the angel, said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Look at that phrase again in verse 4, or listen to that phrase again in verse 4. Knowledge shall be increased. Knowledge of what? Well, in context, knowledge of the prophecies. The angel says the closer you get to the fulfillment of these prophecies, the more your understanding is going to increase. The wise, the understanding of the wise. But we're not quite there yet. And so we have a lot of details and we we do know a lot of facts. And please, I'm not in any way suggesting that we can't know what God has clearly revealed. And what God has clearly revealed, we can know emphatically and confidently. But there are many things concerning prophecy that we don't know. There are many mysteries. The mystery of lawlessness is still a mystery. Who is the Antichrist? We don't know that yet. Some have their theories. Some say this person. Some say that person. All of those theories have been proven wrong. 
most of them have been proven wrong. If they're talking about somebody who's, who's alive today, who, they, who has a name that they can identify, that they can tag. There are a series of mysteries in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 10, called the thunder judgments. And when John was going to tell us what they were, the angel said, no, 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 those are mysteries. They're mysteries. So God has not told us everything. There are mysteries that remain. Here's one of the mysteries. This is a forgotten question. It's a question that many Christians are no longer asking. Where did Elijah go? Where did he go? Now, if you answered heaven, you say, well, chapter 2, verse 1 of 2 Kings says that he was taken up into heaven. Realize that the word heaven there It can mean the heavenly heaven, God's heaven, but even more often than that, it just simply means the skies. We know we saw him go up in the whirlwind in the skies, at least in the in the text we see it. And here's the here's the thing. We we think of this as New Testament Christians. We have the promises, New Testament Christians living on this side of the resurrection that absent from the body is present with the Lord. That's an incredible gift. We know that when our loved ones, our friends, our family members who die in faith, they're they're in Christ when they die, that absent from the body, present with the Lord. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that when Jesus comes back, He's going to bring their spirits with Him. It's why their bodies are are, are raised first before us, because He's going to reunite them with resurrected bodies. But that's not the way it was before the cross. That's not the way it was before Jesus came to earth and died for sins and rose again. The Old Testament saints didn't go to heaven whenever they died. They could not go to heaven because the way had not been provided yet. And so the Bible says that they went to a place that is sometimes called paradise when Jesus was hanging on the cross and one of the thieves said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you are in your kingdom. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise but we know that wasn't heaven at the time because Jesus hadn't ascended to the father yet when Jesus appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden the empty tomb he said I have not yet ascended to my father so paradise was not in heaven prior to the resurrection of Christ prior to the ascension It was, according to Ephesians 4, it was because Jesus died for our sins and rose again that He was able to take captivity captive. And He was able to ascend and bring with Him those of the Old Testament saints who had trusted in Jehovah. And so that they are now in heaven. And so that now all who go to heaven. So you say, well, does the Scripture specifically say that? Well, there are, there are a couple verses where it says that. Proverbs 30, verse 4 is one of them. Who hath ascended up into heaven? Or descended? Who hath gathered the winds in his fist? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. We can tell. We can tell because we now know the name of his son. We know his son's name is Yahuwah or Yahshua, Jehovah's salvation. Jehovah saves Jesus Christ, the Messiah. 
This is what Jesus said in John chapter 3 when he was speaking with Nicodemus. He said, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Jesus said, there hasn't been anybody but me in heaven. No men, God and his angels, but I'm the only man, Jesus said, who's ever been to heaven, so you better listen to what I have to say about it. Now all of that changed after the ascension of Jesus. It's different today, but it still brings us back to the question, where did Elijah go? Did God send him to paradise? Did God send him into the future? Did God shoot him through a wormhole? As scientists talk about today, and shooting him straight into the future, we don't know, we can't answer that question, but we know the peculiarity tells us God was not done with Elijah. Now, the peculiarities begin in 2 Kings chapter 2, but the plot thickens in 2 Chronicles 21. I'm not going to take you back to 2 Chronicles. We looked at this passage a few weeks ago. But you remember after Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, after he died, he was a righteous king, but he had had made some major mistakes. And and one of the greatest mistakes that he made was he allowed his son, Jehoram, to marry the daughter of of Jezebel and Ahab. And after Jehoshaphat died, his son comes to power and he slaughters all of his brothers and anyone else of royal, any other man of royal blood who could challenge him to the throne, he kills them all. And then in 2 Chronicles, we see that he gets a letter from Elijah that says, God's going to judge you and you're going to die in a very unique and disgusting way. You're going to die on the pot. Here's what we didn't talk about a few weeks ago, though. Elijah had already been raptured at that point. See, Elijah was raptured while Jehoshaphat was still alive. We know that because in the very next chapter, we see Elisha's ministry has begun, and Elisha confronts Jehoshaphat. So where did the letter come from? We don't know. We don't know. Did he write it before he was raptured? Was it tucked into his mantle when his mantle fell and Elisha picked up the mantle and he found this letter that was written to somebody who wasn't even king yet and then Elisha sent it? We don't know. We don't know exactly how it happened. Some people just try to say, well, I know it says that Elijah was raptured before Jehoshaphat died, but that really the author just got things out of order. He was just kind of doing things for the sake of the story. Uh, I, I reject that. Any, any idea of trying to minimize the supernatural in God's word, the, God doesn't need to rearrange things to make things look like a miracle or sound like a miracle. So it's a mystery, but it tells us it's a way of God saying to us, even after his rapture, I'm not done with Elijah yet. Elijah still has a mission. Elijah still has a message. So then the prophecy is given. Look with me again in Malachi. If you're still there, uh, you're there. If not, turn back to Malachi for a second. Malachi chapter 3 and 4, the prophecy is given. Elijah will return before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now the prophecy actually begins in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1 of Malachi. Let me 
I won't read the entire chapter 3, but listen to how chapter 3 begins. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver. And they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling in his wages, the widow, the fatherless, and that turn aside the stranger from his right hand. And fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. We saw in Chapter 4, again, verse 6, that Elijah, when he comes, he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now, Elijah could be the messenger of chapter 3 and chapter 4. He could be. But it seems unlikely. It seems that there are two messengers that God is talking about here. In fact, Jesus in Matthew chapter 11 appears to quote this passage of scripture some think that he's he's quoting Isaiah but he appears to quote Malachi chapter 3 in reference to John the Baptist so it's more likely that he's speaking here of a second witness that there are two witnesses John the Baptist before the first coming of Jesus and Elijah before the Second coming of Jesus before the great and terrible day of the Lord. John the Baptist before the Lord Jesus comes to the temple the first time. And that's what we're celebrating today, right? Palm Sunday when Jesus was coming to present himself as the Lamb of God. And he came to God's temple. He came to his father's house as he called it. The temple in Jerusalem which then stood. Or some people think that, that the two messengers here are the messengers of Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. One being Elijah, one being another messenger of God who is not here named. We don't know. But what we do know is that when Elijah comes, the hearts of the Jewish people will change. And there will be a great revival among the Jewish people as they see the prophecy of Elijah fulfilled see Elijah is going to be used to ensure a remnant that will keep the earth from total ruin Elijah is going to ensure that that remnant of the elect that remnant of the Jewish people who truly worship their Messiah who recognize Jesus as Messiah and they're not trusting in the law of Moses to save them they're trusting in Jesus that they remain and because of the remnant, God will spare the people. This was the lesson that we looked at a few weeks ago now when Elijah was on Mount Horeb. And Elijah was appealing to God. He was interceding with God against the nation of Israel. 
And he said, God, they, they've killed your prophets and they're worshiping false gods and they're, they've rejected you and now they're trying to kill me. And listen to what Romans 11 says because Paul cites this very passage of Scripture in promising that God is not yet done with Israel. Paul says in Romans chapter 11, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. By the way, if the church is Israel, we have a theological problem. But the church is, is distinct from Israel. The church is already saved. If you're in the church, you're already saved. You don't need to be saved if you are part of the church. But Israel does need to be saved. And Paul says, I bear them record that they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and going uh, about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And it goes on to talk about the fact that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's chapter 10. But jump over to chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. And God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. Don't you know what the scripture saith of Elias, Elijah? How he maketh intercession to God against Israel? Saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars. And I alone am left and they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so, then at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. God says, listen, I have preserved even today a remnant of Jewish believers. Many of them identify themselves as Messianic Jews. Not all of them. Many of them do. Jewish men and women who even though there is a partial blindness to the nation, yet they have trusted in Yeshua as their Hamashiach, their Messiah. And they're trusting. And we see, even in Israel today, more Christians in Israel today than there have been since the first century. God is on the move. And that's a sign that the end is near. That, that's a sign that God is going to stop that partial blinding. That Elijah is on his way. The mission of Elijah will be to ensure the remnant. Isn't it amazing that Elijah who went to God against Israel, is God's going to use him on behalf of Israel? Isn't that amazing? Isn't that, isn't that itself a lesson of, of grace and mercy. How God changes Elijah's heart and he has him as part of this mission to restore the children of Israel. The prophecy guarantees that Elijah will come. Now, many people dismiss Malachi chapters 3 and 4 as having anything to do with Elijah because of what Jesus says about John the Baptist and what the angel says about John the Baptist. And so the next thing that I want to show you is that the prophecy of Malachi 4 has been fulfilled, but it's only been fulfilled symbolically. It's been fulfilled symbolically through John the Baptist, who is very likely the literal fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. John the Baptist, we're told in Luke, would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Notice the angel does not say he will be Elijah. But he would come in the spirit of Elijah, in the power of Elijah. 
Notice also in John chapter 1, verse 21, that when John the Baptist was asked, are you Elijah? Are you the fulfillment of Malachi 4.6? Uh, John the Baptist said, no, I am not. So we can know for sure that John the Baptist was not the complete final fulfillment of this prophecy. He was a symbolic fulfillment. But John the Baptist, the greatest of all the Old Covenant prophets, according to Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 11, he symbolized Elijah because he did what Elijah is going to do at the second coming. At the first coming, John the Baptist was preparing the way. He was preparing people's hearts to receive Jesus as Messiah. And even though the majority of, of Israel rejected him, even though the majority of the leaders rejected him, yet there were many who did not reject him. And it's why we still have this today. Because of the testimony of the apostles and because of the testimony of the early church in the first century, almost, almost exclusively Jewish. By the second century, it was predominantly Gentile. But the Jewish believers in Jesus Messiah fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi 3 and symbolically fulfilled the prophecy of Malachi chapter 4 as well. But even in this, Jesus affirms that Elijah is still coming. It's interesting that the very verse that many people use to deny Elijah is coming is actually a promise from Jesus that he is still coming. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. John the Baptist is in prison and Jesus asks in verse 7, What went ye out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? What, what went ye out for to see? A man clothed in soft raiment? Behold, they that wear soft clothing are in king's houses. He said, listen, the reason that people went out to hear John the Baptist wasn't because of how he was dressed or because of anything about him. But what went ye out to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, more than a prophet, for this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. Verily I say unto you, among them that are born of women, there hath not risen a greater than John the Baptist, notwithstanding. He that is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if ye will receive it, this is Elias, which was for to come. Now, that is an unfortunate translation of the Greek because in the Greek, Jesus does not say this is Elijah that was to come. Jesus actually literally says this is Elijah, the one being about to come. This is Elijah, the one about to come. Even in this prophecy, Jesus said he is symbolically Elijah. If you'll receive it, the Elijah that is still coming. The prophecy is only symbolically fulfilled. Now, I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're jumping around a little bit this morning, more than we often do, but I want you to see these scriptures as we conclude this study of the God of Elijah. And I want to take you back to another mountaintop. We've looked at Mount Carmel and the ministry that Elijah had there against the prophets of Baal, how God sent fire down from heaven. We have gone with him to Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai where he had communication with God himself and he interceded against Israel. But 
received a new mission from God and heard about the mercy of God. But I want to take you this morning to the prophetic summit on probably Mount Hermon. Almost certainly, we know that Jesus and his disciples were were at the base of Mount Hermon eight days before this event happened. So it's almost certainly that this is the mountain, uh, Mount Hermon, which is in the northeast corner of Israel today, uh, still partly controlled by Israel, partly uh, by other nations. But this prophecy, this prophetic summit where Jesus himself takes Peter, James, and John up the side of this mountain, and Jesus reveals his glory... And he's transfigured. And Elijah shows up again. Elijah and Moses. Moses and Elijah. Let's look at these verses together. Luke chapter 9. We'll pick it up in verse 28. And it came to pass about eight days after these sayings, he took Peter and John and James and went up into a mountain to pray. And as he prayed... The fashion of his countenance was altered, his raiment was white and glistening, and behold, there talked with him two men, which were Moses and Elias, who appeared in glory and spake of his decease, which he should accomplish at Jerusalem. See, this is how Elijah again takes us back to Palm Sunday. What did Elijah and Moses go there to do? To talk to Jesus about going to Jerusalem to die. That was the conversation. That was this prophetic summit that was occurring here on Mount Hermon. They appeared in glory. They talked about his decease. But Peter and they that were with him, James and John, were heavy with sleep. And when they were awake, I love Peter. I can relate to Peter a lot of times. Fighting off sleep when you know you're supposed to be awake. They saw his glory and the two men that stood with him. And it came to pass as they departed from him, Peter said unto Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. In other words, he saw Elijah and Moses leaving, and he wanted, he, he wanted them to stay too. So he's like, what, what, what can I do? What can I do? And Mark says he didn't know what to say. So he, he just started talking. I can relate to that too, that way to get ourselves in trouble. Sometimes the best thing to do is just, is just shut up. But sometimes we have to learn that the hard way. So Peter is talking, he says, Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias, not knowing what he said. While he thus spake, there came a cloud and overshadowed them, and they feared as they entered into the cloud. And there came a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved son, hear him. And when the voice was passed, Jesus was found alone, and they kept it close and told no man in those days any of those things which they had seen. So, They see Moses and Elijah in glory. What does that mean? Well, we don't know. Does it mean that Elijah has somehow been glorified? That seems unlikely, given that he was meeting with Jesus before Jesus had died for his sins and risen again before anyone had been glorified other than Jesus. Is the word glory here simply mean importance? That they were there in their in the glory of their office, in the importance of their office, that's probably more likely. We don't even know if they were there physically because Matthew says Jesus tells them that this was a vision, that they had a vision of Moses and Elijah. So we know that they were there, but were they there physically? We don't know. Were they there holographically? We don't know. Were, were they there somehow from the past, that God brought them there 
from the past, some kind of holographic projection from the past? We don't know. You say, you're sounding like science fiction. Well, hey, the prophets see into the future. God shows them the future. Nothing is impossible with God. We don't know. Maybe they were speaking from the future into the past. We, we have no idea. God doesn't give us all the details. We still have a lot of questions. But the important thing is what they were there to do. They were there to speak about his death. Now, why Moses and Elijah? Let me give you very quickly a few likely reasons. Number one, the one that's most commonly agreed on by scholars is that they were there because they symbolized the law and the prophets. Moses, obviously the great lawgiver. Elijah, the end of the prophets. I mean, if the Old Testament ends with the prophecy about Elijah and Elijah shows up, it makes sense that he's there to represent the Old Testament prophets as the last prophecy of the Old Testament is about him. Doesn't make as much sense if he's not really coming back. But if he is coming back, and and I absolutely believe he is because that's the clear understanding of the promise and the prophecy, then it makes perfect sense why he would be there. Because all of the Old Testament testifies about the coming Messiah. All of it tells us that he has to die. From the very first prophecy in Genesis 3.15, where God said to the serpent, after Adam and Eve had sinned, I will put enmity between thee and the woman, between thy seed and her seed. And he, the seed of the woman, this virgin-born Savior, is going to crush your head, Satan. And all you're going to do is succeed in bruising his heel. And as Jesus hung on the cross, the nail driven through his legs, his heels were bruised, literally. That prophecy was fulfilled literally, too. His literal heels were bruised as they were nailed to the cross. But he crushed the serpent in doing it. He crushed the head of Satan. Hebrews says that he uh, had to taste of death for us to deliver us from the power of of the devil and fear of death. John says that he came to destroy the works of the devil. He did that in the cross. Elijah, as a significant prophet, symbolizes all the prophecies about that day. The law itself was set up to picture the sacrificial system of the law, to picture the fact that blood was necessary, that sacrifice was necessary to not only cover sin as it did in the Old Testament, but to remove sin as far as the east from the west in the perfect sacrifice. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. Moses and Elijah symbolize the law and the prophets. By the way, again, that's not just conjecture. That's what Jesus himself said in Luke 24 after his ascension, or excuse me, excuse me, after his resurrection, before his ascension, when he met the disciples on the road to Emmaus beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Luke says. He expounded unto them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. And then when He appeared to the disciples, the eleven apostles after Judas's defection, He said unto them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning Me. Then opened He their understanding that they might understand the Scriptures, And he said unto them, 
Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. That's what Moses and Elijah were talking with him about there on the Mount of Transfiguration, about what we now look back and celebrate. And it's the message that we are commanded and privileged to carry to everyone, that you can be forgiven of your sins. Actually really forgiven of your sins. Now the bad news is you're a sinner. And you're damned to hell if you reject Jesus. That's horrendous news. But the horrendous news is completely overshadowed by the amazing news that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That He shed His blood to pay for your sin. That He absorbed God's wrath on your behalf. And you can receive that forgiveness. But Jesus said you have to Admit, admit your sin. And you have to come to me for the remission of sins. That's what the gospel is all about. You have to understand that Jesus not only died and rose again, but that he died for your sin. And that he rose again. That you can have eternal life. That you can be part of the family of God. And if you've never made that decision, today needs to be the day because you are not guaranteed tomorrow. Jesus came to die for your sins. He rose again. Elijah is a testimony of that. He discussed it. Let me give you a couple. He discussed it with Jesus as Jesus was preparing his, his disciples and preparing himself to go to the cross for you and for me. So Moses and Elijah symbolize the law and the prophets. Here's another thing. Moses and Elijah represent aspects of Exodus. This is very interesting. You don't see this in the English, but Luke says that the Decease of Jesus, the Greek word that he uses there is exodon. Moses and Elijah were there to prepare Jesus for his exodus. His death was not going to be an end. His death was going to be a deliverance. This is how the author of Hebrews uses the word exodon, as you would expect. It's where we get our English word exodus from. The exodus from Egypt. Moses symbolizes the exodus from Egypt. Elijah symbolizes the exodus from earth. Both symbolized in the men, Moses and Elijah. The deliverance of the righteous from judgment. The deliverance of the righteous from darkness to light. And why is that possible? Colossians 1 tells us, Ephesians 2 tells us, Hebrews 10 tells us. We'll look tonight at Hebrews chapter 10. It's because Jesus died for our sins and rose again. It's because of his exodus that we get to join in that exodus. And you know what? Peter, who was one of the three men there to witness all this, this is how he responded to this event in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he talked about his own exodus. He saw his death as an exodus. See, Moses represents those who believe in Christ and are delivered through death. Elijah represents those who are alive and remain when Jesus returns and are delivered from death. But in both, we have the picture that it's through Jesus that we have exodus. It's through his exodus on the cross in the empty tomb, that we have exodus from sin and death as well. You know, there's another thing. I'll, let me just mention this quickly. It's not in your notes. It's not on the screen. But 
Another significant thing about Moses and Elijah is that both men interceded with God on Mount Horeb. Moses interceded with God on behalf of Israel. Elijah interceded with God against Israel. Isn't that interesting? And in both, God demonstrated His mercy and His grace on Israel. Now again, Jesus repeated the prophecy. Look with me at uh, the, the account in Luke just, just ends there, but look with me at one more passage of Scripture. Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. And we get the rest of the story in Matthew that Luke does not record. When they had lifted up their eyes on the Mount of Transfiguration after Moses and Elijah were gone, they came down from the mountain. Jesus charged them, verse 9, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then say the scribes that Elias must come first? Why do people take that prophecy literally, Jesus? That prophecy in Malachi about Elijah coming back first, why do they take that literally? Now, the reason that they were asking that is because they didn't understand the two advents of Jesus. They didn't understand that Jesus was coming to die. They thought he was coming to make everything right physically. They didn't understand that first he had to come and make everything right spiritually. They thought Jesus was going to set up his kingdom. They thought that there was one coming and this was it. And obviously Elijah hadn't come yet. So Peter says, well, why does the scripture say that? Why do they believe that's literal? Because obviously you're here and Elijah didn't show up. And so notice what Jesus says. Jesus answered and said unto them, Elias truly shall first come and restore all things. Don't think that that's just symbolic, Peter. Don't think that that's just a metaphor, Peter. But also don't miss the analogy, don't miss the symbolism. But I say unto you that Elias is come already, and that they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the Son of Man suffer of them. Elias, Elijah, symbolically, Jesus said, has come in the person of John the Baptist. But, Jesus said, he's still coming. He's still coming. I skipped over this slide, uh, Linda, if you could, or Nick, if you could find it for me. I don't know if you can or not. I skipped over this. I'm going to move this to the end. Why is it so important that we understand Elijah is literally coming again? Because it's absolutely critical that we understand Jesus is literally coming again. Jesus is not just coming back symbolically in the church. That's what some people teach. Well, Jesus is back. We're Jesus. Now listen, we're, we're the hands and feet of Jesus, absolutely. But if you think that we are going to fix the world, you are sadly mistaken. Jesus is going to fix the world. It's God-sized problem. We have a God-sized solution. So Jesus is coming back, literally. And before it, Elias is coming. Jesus said it. This is the second time that Jesus has assured us affirmed the prophecy. So Jesus is coming back too. Are you living like it? Are you living like He's coming back again? We celebrate the first coming of Jesus today. We celebrate His entrance into Jerusalem as the 
Lamb of God, riding on a donkey in fulfillment of the Scriptures. Are you just as sure that He's coming again? Because He is just as surely coming again. Titus promises this, Titus chapter 2, the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. Paul says to Titus, hey, you need to look back and remember what Jesus did the first time he came. He died for our sins. He rose again, but you better remember also that he's coming back. You better be living for that glorious appearing. You better be living for that blessed hope. And if you are, you'll be zealous in how you're living. You'll be serious about living for him. Father, we thank you, God, for the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, who came to earth to die for our sins. Father, as we think back upon that Passion Week, Jesus coming on mission, knowing he would be rejected, knowing he would be crucified, knowing, God, that you would pour out your wrath on him, not for his sins because he had none, but for my sin, for all of our sins. God, knowing also that you would raise him from the dead. And God, as we think about the sacrifice of Jesus, may we never forget the return of Jesus. May we never forget that we're going to see him, maybe today, maybe tomorrow, we don't know when. God, help us to remember so that we can be zealous in living for you, knowing that we will live with you forever. We love you and thank you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that wraps up today's message. We hope this has made an impact on your life and encourages you to follow and reflect Jesus daily. If it has, please give us a five-star rating on whatever platform you listen on and share it with a friend so others might be encouraged as well. If you have never accepted Christ as your Savior and would like to know how, join us on Sunday mornings at 10.30, Sunday nights at 7 o'clock, Wednesday nights at 6.45, or give one of our pastors a call at 301-724-5876. We would love to hear from you. We hope to see you soon, and until next time, stay faithful.